the era of cheap money is over, but I think there's still access to just money in general. I think the difference being as founders are now going out to fundraise, there there's just a higher bar that needs to be cleared. So we have to, again, focus more on the narrative of why you, why now? Great founders and great companies will always raise money. Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast explores the world of startups, growth stage companies, and late stage companies that have made a big splash in their industries around the world. In the early stages of a startup, it's important to be willing to pivot, understand where your strengths lie, and find your tribe. Angela Tran knows this. As general partner at Version One Ventures, it's her job to help entrepreneurs get their idea off the ground by playing to their strengths and providing guidance on areas of weakness. She introduces them to like-minded members of the community, and she understands the importance of the pivot because she's done it herself. She joined founder Boris Wirtz a year after the now $100 million fund got off the ground, despite her original plan, become an engineer. I did all my degrees at the University of Toronto, and I started out in engineering science. I majored at the time in biomedical engineering, but it was the early 2000s, so I wasn't really sure what the job market was for this. So I decided to pivot to financial engineering, which wasn't too far from kind of the principles that I had learned in my undergrad. So I did this uh, for my master's and my PhD, and then at some point moved to Silicon Valley in 2010 and tried to build my career as an engineer in Silicon Valley, which meant very different things than an engineer in, in Toronto. It was very much software developer based. And while I could code, I certainly couldn't do it at the production level. So I struggled. And it wasn't until I met a fellow Canadian who had just graduated from, you know, the premier uh, accelerator called Y Combinator that I decided to pursue entrepreneurship instead. Um, he had this amazing idea to take the top PhDs, train them to be data scientists, and then place them at companies like Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, Twitter, because at the time in 2012, big data was all the rage. He asked me actually to be his guinea pig at first. And I thought, no, 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 I think I would be much better off being an entrepreneur with you. And so we did this together for one and a half years, although the company went on for another eight and I was able to advise over the time. But it was an amazing experience um, finding people like myself and giving them a channel to to be contributors to industry outside of academia. It was amazing. So you moved from uh, insight data science into right. the venture capital world. And what I love about your story, and it underpins everybody I've spoken to on this series so far, that it's about the people you meet and the connections you make along the way that help get you from where you were to where you are. Right. Exactly that. Um, I mean, when I moved out to, to Silicon Valley in 2010, I didn't know anybody. So the first thing I did was went to my alma mater at the University of Toronto and I said, hey, what other grads from engineering or arts and science or any 
any department are here. And I met another Canadian who was a VC at Greylock at the time, and he was very good friends with my partner, Boris, at Version 1 now. And that's how, that's how we were connected. And the other sort of consistent thread in the conversations I've had is that success comes from not being afraid to fail. And that when you got into venture capital funding, you didn't even really know what venture capital funding was? Nope. No idea. I mean, after I left Insight, I I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew the things that I valued, which was continuous learning, compassion as it pertains to working with people and helping people realize their dreams. Growing up, I never really knew what I wanted to do, right? Hence the oh, I'll do biomedical engineering or maybe financial engineering. But there was always a theme, I think, around continuous learning. Um, but on the compassion side, I think I just really wanted to help people. And then the last pieces are just around freedom, the freedom to kind of pursue your, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. We're so lucky to live in the ecosystem that we live in because we, are, we have so many opportunities around us. The question is, which opportunity do you take? This is kind of the the long-winded way of saying is saying I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I spoke to as many people as possible to really understand what were the opportunities in the Bay Area at the time. And, you know, I didn't say no to any meetings. Hence, I didn't say no to, I was just really fortunate and thought like, oh, of course I want to speak to this person named Boris Wirtz. Why not? And so Boris, we, we had our first call over Skype. Um, this was in, I think, July of 2013. And and I think we we jived, you know, personality wise. And then he told me that he was going to be visiting the Bay Area uh, a few weeks later. He's based in Vancouver um, and that we should meet. And as part of my kind of homework take take home assignment, I was supposed to to identify three companies that would be a good fit for version one, usually at like kind of the seed stage. And of course, not knowing anything about venture capital, I asked myself, well, why does he only want to see three companies? And that's when I put on my engineering mindset or put on my engineering hat again and thought, well, there must be a better way to do this. Why does he only want three? There's probably infinite number. And so I spent the better week, better, most of my time over two weeks just trying to gather as much information as possible on every startup on this planet. I went on to Twitter. I went on to Crunchbase. I went to AngelList, which are kind of like, you know, repositories for information, mm -hmm. called their APIs and tried to build predictive models of <laughs> what successful companies were in this batch of, you know, 50,000, 100,000 startups. Um, and I quickly learned that this is an impossible task at least trying to do this at an early stage. Um, for, so did you give him three companies though? I didn't, I couldn't. I When I met him three weeks later or two weeks later, I said, he said, so what do you have for me? I'm like, nothing. And he, and he was probably very perplexed. And he's like, well, what were you doing these these during this entire time? And I said, well, I was building models. <laughs> and and he, he's like, well, what did you learn from these models? And I think that was the, you know, kind of premise of our relation, like, you know, the start of our relationship of, wow, she's thinking outside of the box. It's it's completely wrong, but it was just very different. Yeah, I've been told that you and, and your co-founder, Boris, are completely different people. And now I'm really starting to get a sense as to what that means. We love backing mission-driven founders. So people who won't stop at anything to solve that, solve the problem that they've 
experienced firsthand. So I don't I don't actually think we're all that mm. different. I think personality, yes, but the way we think, our working styles, um, I think they're actually quite complementary and allow us to trust each other, you know, and have a super effective and and dare I say like efficient partnership. Some people would have just done the homework as a side, provide this prospective partner with three leads for funding. But Angela was thinking bigger and looking to apply her expertise to an industry that was foreign to her. It's a consistent theme with the people I speak to on this series, passion for exploration, solving a friction point, or going a new way. That's what drives their success. She cites her willingness to try new things and apply her passion for learning for her success at version one. Version One Ventures provides seed-level funding to founders of companies that are barely more than an idea. And the last decade has been very good to the VC firm. But Angela is experiencing her first major bear market as interest rates spike, valuations fall, and investors step back to see what she can do with the capital they've already given her. Entrepreneurs are feeling the same pressure. I wanted to know how a founder with little more than an idea can still attract capital during these uncertain times. Why call the company Version One Ventures? Version One Ventures is really about us as a fund trying to work with entrepreneurs to help them build the first iteration of their product. So the first version, the first iteration. And so, you know, Sometimes when companies come to us, they haven't even started putting code onto onto the screen. So for us, you know, there's never any time in a company's life cycle that is too early. In fact, we enjoy being a part of that process to get that first product to fruition. And I guess being part of that whole process involves not only you know providing capital but also advice guidance feedback that wisdom necessary to take it to the next level yeah i mean capital capital is quite a commodity or at least it was um before before you know 20 2022 so i think you know one of the things that boris and i have a lot of pride in is you know just being there for our, our founders during the good the bad the ugly um and this can this comes in different flavors, um, whether it is extending our network to to founders when it comes time to fundraising or customer development. It also extends to our thoughts on product building or our thoughts on business models. And I think the last piece that I that is probably underrated, but what most people come to me for is the kind of like the mental and emotional support that is required when building a company. I think a lot of us forget that building a company is not just building a product, right? It's about managing and leading folks to build that product. And everything at the core of an organization is people. And so most of the support we provide is around people. Well, tell me about those people. For whom do you typically open your wallet? So typically, um, we like to invest in founders or entrepreneurs, people who have just identified a problem in their own industry or, you know, just something that they've, they've experienced day to day that is just 
urging them to put all their time into solving this particular issue. For us, we are pretty agnostic to industry. It doesn't really matter what the application is, as long as the person at the helm really understands the problem and won't stop at anything but to solve this problem. So you joined uh, version one in 2013, a year after um, Boris started the company. So this is your first winter for an industry, because I know crypto is, is a big thing for Boris and, and among other things, of course. Um, how has that financing environment evolved over the last 10 years of the fund? So, like you said, you know, since joining in 2013, I've been very fortunate, or most of us who've, who've been in venture during this time, um, we've been really fortunate to to see this amazing bull market, right? It's It's there's been a lot of capital that's been put into startup ecosystem and innovation. So what's been amazing about this incredible bull market is all the innovation that has come out of it. And and it has been sunshine and rainbows for a really long time. And it, it you know, for both both founders who have seen their companies be valued at over a billion dollars or what we call unicorns, or for venture capitalists who now think that they are the best investors in the whole world because their their investments look so great. Um, any, everything that goes up has to at least come down a little. And after an incredibly bullish 2020, 2021, we're starting to see, you know, muted activity relative to, to those two major years. But this is kind of still in line and on par for the growth that we've seen since 2013. Um, it, it just means that, you know, we... I think we went too fast, too furious, and and now things are just taking their time to slowly adjust. But like I said, everything is relative, and we're I think we're still on this incredible trajectory. It's a it's a it's a micro winter versus a huge winter. So if we went too fast and too furious, what do you say to the startup today who's trying <laughs> to raise money for the first time in this environment? I don't think it's any different from before, except we really place a greater emphasis on, well, what is unique about you as a founder that puts you in the best position to build this company right now? This is not, like I said, this is not a new phenomenon or a new way of thinking, but I believe the bar is just a lot higher for investors to deploy capital. So we really need to to come up with, you know, great answers to these questions for people to be, you know, happy to give away money. So then what's a great answer to the question of of why now? For the why you, that that's unique for every individual. Right. But what about the why now? So why now? traditionally or, or generally speaking, when, we, when we're pitched the why now, I think founders tend to focus on macro trends. For example, I'll, I'll use climate and energy sector. Um, you know, we, we, are, we are all stakeholders on this earth. We, we have all experienced now, by now, uh, the effects of wildfires. And, you know, everyone knows that we have to do something to solve this crisis. But as a founder pitching to a VC, 
that macro story is just not strong enough. We have to figure out how to tie this to a buyer. Who needs to buy your product today? Or was des is so desperate that they needed to buy it yesterday? So if the companies you invest in are at their earliest of early stages, I guess the why you and the why now are the critical questions to answer because they're not going to have metrics that you can turn to to help you decide who to invest in. That's right. Um, and so when there are no metrics to invest in, we really are focused on thinking about what the future looks like with this company. How much of an impact can this company make on, you know, particular industry, on the world? I think that's that's probably the most important aspect to, or one of the key parts of trying to figure out the kind of why you and why now. The other thing that we we often think about is what is the non-obvious thing that this company becomes? Sometimes we're pitched ideas where we, we can see kind of the writing on the wall. And while a lot of those can become really, really good businesses, it's hard to imagine how you go from good to great to incredible when it's a very obvious path, path that most people can copy. And so part of the why you piece that's, that's special is trying to understand a founder's thinking behind what this can really become. It's fascinating to me to learn that VCs like Boris and Angela will make investing decisions based less on the idea and more on the individual. Being able to tell a good story about the idea is important, but giving a VC an understanding of who they're investing in is what can make or break landing funding. In a world where money is becoming scarcer and less of a commodity than the past decade, so I wanted to understand where Angela sees VC funding in the software space going from here. Crypto is a theme that you really care about. What do you say to companies in this space shivering through the investment winter, I suppose crypto or otherwise? Our, our message hasn't really changed for those companies either, just like kind of mainstream companies. Um, but I think specific to crypto, we continue to just encourage folks to find and build something that is, you know, a native use case to crypto. And by this, I mean, you know, how can we really take advantage of the trustlessness feature of or and the decentralized nature of crypto? So today we've seen, a, you know, a, a couple of use cases from, you know, store value like Bitcoin to NFTs, using smart contracts to, you know, kind of decentralized finance. And so we just keep encouraging folks to think about how can we really take advantage of crypto technology versus applying crypto to a particular sector? What is actually native, new, that couldn't have been done before, but is possible now because of this idea of decentralization and trustlessness? I suppose that applies to the other big thing right now, artificial intelligence, and pretty much anything as well. So what signs are you looking for as evidence that we're getting a, a, a spring or, or any kind of thawing when there is a winter scenario? You know, in every time we think about the, yeah, I guess, unthawing, as things start to, to warm up, it's just about people. It's about heat. 
people bring heat. And as soon as an area becomes interesting, we see a lot more founders, which attract more investors, which attract more founders, and which attracts more investors. It's quite cyclical. And so that's what we kind of look for for early signs of spring. And then as it goes into, you know, summer, super hot, it becomes, you start to see how this cycle becomes unsustainable, right? Lots of capital into the system, lots of startups being built, but then it's a lot of noise. Lots of what we call tourists, both founders and investors alike who are there to try to maybe just monetize quick value that they can capture. And so then that leads to winters again when we realize that things are not sustainable. With the doubling of interest rates in two years, is the era of cheap money over? The era of cheap money is over, but I think there's still access to just money in general. I think the difference being, as founders are now going out to fundraise, there there's just a higher bar that needs to be cleared. So we have to, again, focus more on the narrative of why you, why now? Great founders and great companies will always raise money. And I can imagine there's a survival of the fittest component to this as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this applies to to investors as well. I mean, we've had we we as investors have our own investors who have been backing managers like us during this bull market and now are pulling back and waiting to see how we do in terms of our track record, right? And so they're evaluating our performance in the same way as we're evaluating our company's performances with a little bit more scrutiny and, and with a, a little bit more of a critical eye. But, but Michael, I, I really think that great companies, great founders, great investors, we will always have money available to us. It's just that the bar is a little bit higher now. Angela, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed thinking about, you know, my, my path to venture capital as well as what the future might hold. So what did we learn from Angela's experience as an engineer turned venture capitalist? Her willingness to pivot is admirable and gives us an understanding of just how far passion can drive us in the direction we wish to go. And to learn that in the earliest stages of a startup, it's less about the problem your product or service solves and more about you, who you are as a thinker and leader. And then it becomes about why the product or service is essential today or even yesterday. This has been the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast, where we learn the secrets to innovation economy success from the entrepreneurs who are paving the way for the future. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening.